Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anthony Bourdain, and you're listening to The Trip, the new podcast from my partners at Roads and Kingdoms. The Trip is your passport to all things weirder, deeper, further. Each episode, a different Roads and Kingdoms contributor will take you behind the scenes of a reporting trip somewhere in the world with host Nathan Thornburg from Roads and Kingdoms. Now Nathan talks with my other partner at Roads and Kingdoms, Matt Goulding, about the strange, glorious life of the cave dwellers of Andalusia. The trip. Get ready for the ride. All right. End mic check. Okay, so I'm uh, Nathan Thornburg. I'm here with my longtime friend and collaborator, Matt Goulding, who is going to tell us the story today. But we should start by explaining where we're recording this at the moment. We are actually recording this segment uh, in a cave in southern Spain, in Andalusia, about 100 kilometers outside of Granada. cave happens to be the cave where my father-in-law was raised. I'm guessing that the picture that most people listening to this are having of what it it means like be inside a cave is probably a little different than what this is feeling like and maybe similar in some ways. Well, you know, of course, the first image you get in, in your mind is caveman, lots of dirt, maybe some bones, and maybe the last bit of ashes from this sort of paleo feast that you uh, had last night. But this, uh, you know, this community has been around for quite some time, and these days you'll find caves in all kinds of flavors. Everything from long, long ago abandoned, sort of the last pieces of, of life from a different era sort of scattered about the floor. Um, harnesses from animals, troughs where, where mules and pigs used to eat, um, all the way up to an actually reformed and refined cave. You know, you got wireless internet, you have big screen televisions, you have modern luxuries. But the majority of the caves, including this one that we're broadcasting from, fall somewhere in between. Which is to say, you know, there's a cool cement floor. There is um, the general outline of a cave, but it's been paved over with stucco. There's electricity, there's running water. But generally speaking, it's a, it's a very simple existence here. About 4,000 feet up into the Sierra de Maria, the high mountain desert area, 100 kilometers outside of Granada. So you have you know, these incredible peaks all the way surrounding this cave community where you have probably about 100 different caves. And this is not just a really old community of, of cave dwellers in the modern sense. This is one of the oldest 
communities of humans ever found in Europe, what they call Los Primeros Pobladores de Europa, which is you know, the first settlers of Europe, were found precisely one kilometer over the hill from Fuente Nueva. And when you cruise around this area, you know, it's funny because you'll see basically no signs of civilization whatsoever. You'll you know, the sort of like sublime beauty of being in this altiplano high desert area. And then suddenly there'll be an archaeological dig where they're digging up, you know, rhinoceros bones from 1.2 million years ago. Um, or they're finding a, a new collection of family bones from humans that are 2 million years old. It's, um, it adds a certain layer of gravity to the idea that Fuente Nueva is a pretty fucking old place. Funny, one of the things I didn't expect here is that people would take, you know, sort of pride in calling them caves still. You know, you'd, I don't know, I'd, I'd kind of thought that they would, yeah, I mean, they're homes that are built into the hillside, but, um, but like, they don't shy from that identity that, like, I'm a man who lives in a cave. Uh, not at all. I mean, for those who have, have generations of families who have lived and thrived and survived and in these conditions, you know, there's a lot of a lot of pride. There's a lot of really warm memories. There's quite a bit of nostalgia, and a lot of belief that these caves represent a simpler form of life, and that simpler form of life is still yours if you want it. Um, whether you were born into it or you just happen to kind of wash up here one day as I did. In this New York Minute presented by Tiger Beer, Samantha Chu tells us about her spring roll restaurant's most popular menu item, a spicy fish sauce with cilantro, garlic, and Thai chili peppers. It's affectionately called crack sauce. My name is Samantha Chu, and I open a spring roll shop, which is a fast casual restaurant in Lower East Side. So the crack sauce is my most popular item. And I went to Thailand and I saw how they make it and I was like, ooh, this is really nice, I love it. I, I wanna start making that. So I asked the ladies how to make it and they showed me. So I made it back home and I was having a dinner party and my friends asked me if this was gonna be on the menu and I said no, because I knew most of my customers would be Caucasian and I didn't think they would like too spicy. They're like, no, they definitely would like it. And I was like, okay, so I'll just put it as spicy Thai sauce. So I know you have to give it a name. And they said crack. I was like, what? They're like, it's addictive. So it's crack. I was like, wow, you guys really like this sauce. <laughs> and um, I was like, okay, I'll try this. But isn't it kind of weird naming your sauce crack? And, and I was surprised that people responded well to it. And now it's like my number one sauce is the one that I didn't want to put on the menu. And you put on anything, grilled cheese, uh, tacos, you know, rice. I just eat that with everything now. <laughs> that was your Tiger Beer Lower East Side Minute. Now back to the trip. Strap in. The cave of uh, my father-in-law and his family right now is basically the home of one person, and that is the great uncle of my wife, Laura, Federico Motos Lajara. Uh, Chacho Federo, as we call him. What is Chacho? 
Chacho is a term of endearment used for older people, for great uncles, for people oftentimes in Andalusia that they used. And he has, for 86 years, lived um, in the community of Fuente Nueva, which has gone through every type of, of change and evolution since he was born in 1930. That's kind of what I find fascinating about Chacho, and, and I guess about the, the way that you relate to him, is that you have found uh, a, a lens to like look at the entire history, which has been a pretty wild and brutal uh, and fascinating history over the last 80 years, 90 years, and that's, you know. Yeah, I mean, you really can follow the history of 20th century Spain into modern Spain through Chacho's existence within this community of Fuente Nueva. Chacho's born six years before the Spanish Civil War starts. All is turmoil in turbulent Spain, and the cost of political anarchy is death and destruction. This unhappy country, reft into two almost equal camps, illustrates all... It doesn't actually arrive to Fuente Nueva, but it comes awfully close in Andalusia. People in this cave community were um, mostly on the Rojo side, or mostly you know, communist sympathizers, not particularly engaged. This is a pretty isolated community, but when forced to fight, many just chose to abandon, um, running off into the woods, up into the mountains. After the Spanish Civil War, in the Franco years, the country was starving, and an already poor community was suddenly pretty desperate. And so there's lots of stories about Franco's men coming through, um, stealing food, essentially, the little bit of food that was left in the community in those years. The citizens of Fuente Nueva were adept at hiding food. You know, there's always stories of, you know, Laura's grandmother hiding, you know, the honey pot in case, you know, the franquistas came through, they wouldn't steal one of the family's precious reserves. Fuente Nueva means a new fountain, and that was a nod to the fact that this community was rich in water. There were a handful of wells throughout this area, and agriculture was the main form of survival. And suddenly in the 1960s, the wells went dry. It's very sort of biblical in nature because there was essentially an exodus afterwards. When what, what caused it to dry up? This is a, a question of much dispute, but um, they believed that a series of earthquakes, uh, sort of tectonic shifts, uh, reprogrammed the geological underpinnings and suddenly the water was no longer there talk about biblical it's one of those things in like a kind of heartland of andalusia you could just imagine a sentiment of a curse like a, a punishment from god it's a very old testament thing to have happen to your town at its peak there was you know up to 500 people living in Puente nueva and the description of this community during these years in the, in the 40s and 50s, basically around the time that my father-in-law, Angel, was born, is of a really vibrant community. There were five or six bars. Um, there were three or four working prostitutes. There was a lot of live music. There was a church right in the center of it, like any good Spanish town. Um, and the stories that are told by 
Chacho Federo and Laura's family members are, you know, stories ripe with ripe with nostalgia. You know, a really beautiful image of, of sort of the cl- families living very close to each other in a very sustainable, self-contained life. Um, not to say there wasn't a lot of struggle, a lot of challenges, but um, you know, when Angel talks about it or when Chacho talks about the old days, it's always with a certain sort of wistful backdrop. You know, my wife and and her siblings grew up with this. You know, they spent the summers there, and so it was never really a crazy thing to them. And so suddenly this American arrives, and my eyes are, you know, are open, and I'm sitting there thinking, good Lord, what's going on here? And asking all kinds of questions. As a writer, you know, thinking constantly about the stories they're telling and the stories that I would like to tell to reflect a little bit of this very unique slice of Spanish culture. first trip down there was when I thought things weren't going so well between Laura and me. I hadn't quite won her over or convinced her that I was going to stick around long enough. And I wanted to, to show her that I was serious. And so I volunteered to go down with her dad, with Angel, to the south for a matanza, a traditional pig slaughter. And Laura wasn't even going, but I felt, well, you know, if I get in the car with this guy who I've never even met before, and I drive down to this community seven hours and kill a pig in a cave and help with that process, you know, maybe she'll see I'm serious. I mean, harebrained idea, but... And at the very worst, you know, it's a good story and something I can see before I leave Spain and go on to Italy or whatever it is I was going to do if it never worked out between the two of us. So sure enough, I get there, and there's a cave where they kill the pigs, and it's Laura's family and Angel's cousins, and um, everybody had warned me... um, about not so much the the sight of it, but the sound of a pig dying in a cave is a pretty intense thing. You know, the the squealing uh, can go on for quite some time, you know, and it lasts much longer than it should, let's be honest here. But um, it was an opportunity for me to, like, literally roll up my sleeves and, and get in there, um, shaving the pig after after it's been killed, and then breaking it down, and then turning its various parts into cured um, charcuterie, basically. This is kind of, in kitchens all around the world, you are a guest, and you're a man, and what you really want to do is go back into the kitchen, and that's weird sometimes. Very weird. In fact, I, you know, it, it evoked the ire of the men who sit around afterwards drinking whiskey, um, and they looked at me, and they literally said, this is de mujeres. This is, what a, this is a woman's work. Why are you in there making blood sausage? Why are you in there making chorizo? But, and it also, for the men, I'm sure, I don't know, I, was, I worked construction once, and I moved over to a union job, and, like, the first, the first five minutes I got there, the guys were just like, slow the fuck down. Right. Like, don't make us look. Don't make us look bad. And, like, I am sure, like, that's just, like, that's a, a, a barrier they don't want to have anybody cross. Like, right. If, if they see that a man can 
actually, after having killed a pig, not just sit there and drink whiskey, but can go and be useful in the kitchen. Oh, man. Yeah, man. You're, you're spilling the beans, basically. And, <laughs> yeah. But there's one thing that men in this part of Spain, in this particular community in Spain, um, do cook, and that's migas. That's the man's job. Migas um, is a fundamental staple of the Fuente Nueva diet. And migas are really shepherd's food. For the better part of its history, most of the male um, inhabitants of these communities were shepherds. Mostly herding sheep, in some cases goat, um, to make cheese above all, to make you know, sort of hard-aged Spanish cheese. And to do that requires going out for 14, 16 hours at a time, especially when you have to climb up into the mountains to to find cooler, um, the cooler patches during the summer. And that meant filling your belly with as much as you possibly could um, and as cheaply as you possibly could. And that meant making migas. This is really the heart and soul of the diet of Fuente Nueva. Migas normally called migas de pan, which is old bread that's sliced up um, and brought back to life by soaking it in water and then essentially frying it in olive oil with whatever you could afford. That could be chorizo, that could be nothing but smoked paprika and um, some vegetables from the garden. But in this part of Fuente Nueva and the surrounding area, it's called migas de harina. It starts with flour. You add flour, you add water, you add salt, and you add oil, and you mix that together. And it starts off looking like a like a bat of cement, slowly churning, sort of this, this shapeless mass. And cooked cooked normally and traditionally, of course, over over a wood fire. The entire trick of it is just to continue to stir. As the flour and the water get worked through the metal spatula that you're constantly using to stir and turn over this, this mass, it gets divided and finally begins to take smaller and smaller shape. What begins as one shapeless mass gets turned into 16 to 32 to 64, and suddenly you have an entire pan of tiny little pebbles of toasted grain. And that's it, what the name migas that's, comes from. That's, yeah. that's, those are migas. Um, when they're done well, it's a brilliant thing because they're sort of toasted um, and golden from the olive oil that they use there on the outside, sort of um, soft and tender and fluffy in the middle. And you eat them with either salty accompaniments, chorizo, um, fried peppers, or sweet. People eat them with chocolate or oranges and things like that. This is shepherd's food. This is chacho food. There's something about that dish in that community and that man. Like chacho at at the pan. Because it is a it's a it's a you have to be present for this dish, right? And you're not doing anything else. Nothing else. Nothing else. You gotta block off you know, you gotta block off an hour and a half of your morning because once you add the flour to the boiling water, you cannot stop moving. It's like um, making, I don't know, like polenta in Italy. Like, you can't just leave the pot bubbling. 
Um, in this case, if you don't work it constantly, then they'll never form. All you'll have is just a big blob of cooked flour and water, and it's you know just inedible. Um, and so the trick is constant movement. And so Chacho, you know, at the very most, will light himself a cigarette of every you know every ten minutes or so from his homegrown tobacco. Um, but the other hand is used to be constantly stirring. It's a remarkable thing because it's such an ingrained rhythm that's built into the DNA of this community and the way that the day takes shape. You know, so it's nine o'clock. You better get out the migas pan. You know, start getting the water boiled by nine thirty if you want to be eating by eleven, so you can get out and, and take the sheep out for their afternoon of uh, of eating. From what I understand. To be a good shepherd, you have to be full on. It's a job that never stops. Like Migas itself, if you're not constantly moving, then it's not taking shape. So the shepherds are basically long gone. One by one, they've left with the water and with the rest of the inhabitants of Fuente Nueva. While at its peak, we had 500 or, uh, or even more people living in Fuente Nueva. Today, you have about 50 full-time residents. And of those 50, only a handful of them have been lifelong, original um, Fuente Nueva citizens. And Chacho Ferrero is one of the last. There's, there's kind of a profound melancholy about this place, about this man, about... I, I mean, what what is that? I, I don't... So much of... What you what you hear about it, so much of the energy of Fuente Nueva is is really invested in the past, in in telling those stories, in remembering those times, and sort of bemoaning the inexorable march towards modernity everywhere else in the world, but there essentially. Um, and Chacho himself is the one guy who just kind of shoulder shrugs his way through it. He's happy there. That's where he wants to be. I mean, he's kind of a, I don't know, how would you describe him? He's, he was never a career man. <laughs> Chacha was never a career man. Um, he was happy to live in the cave. He was happy to live on the bare minimum. He had a flock of 30 or 40 or 50 animals at most times of the year. But, um, you know, even then he was very much interested in taking it pretty easy, going into town, you know, uh, hanging out with the crew, uh, telling stories. You know, he will give you stories at his own, you know, at his own pace. You can poke and prod and ask him questions, and, you know, sometimes he'll respond and sometimes he won't. Um, I think it's important to to say that... um, of course, Spanish is spoken in these communities, but we, it's basically they speak Andalus, which, you know, is a version of Spanish which is you know, grammatically the same. There's a certain, you know, set of vocabulary words, but the accent, the pronunciation is really, really hard to get. Um, I'm sure you experienced that. You know, it's like when they would first leave me alone with Chacho, I would get nervous because I'm like, dude, I'm not going to be able to understand what this guy is saying. It felt like I, it f- felt like I just had to listen for like 24 hours, you know? That first day there, you just have to listen and not expect to understand anything. 
and like slowly like patterns start to emerge and you start to recognize the language that's you know underneath it i mean my spanish is fine but it's just a question about like seeing these things bubble up and you're like oh okay when he says ba like you know that means this which means you know hey got it he's only been outside of Fuentenueva twice in his life. You know, he went to serve in the military and in Morocco for six months when he was 19 years old, and he went to Catalonia one time. And beyond that, this is where he's been. Um, and I, you know, I, I find something extraordinary um, in his dedication to a very simple life um, and his ability to sort of take fulfillment out of what most of us would look at as an extremely solitary existence. How do you, you have a very different life, but how do you, like, why is he important to you? Like, what is he showing you? I mean, I think for me, I, I literally have the exact opposite life. I can't be in a single place for more than a few days before I get restless. In Spanish, they call me a culo inquieto, uh, literally a restless ass. <laughs> um, and I'm constantly looking to refresh my set of stimuli you know, through food, through sights and sounds, uh, through just the, the vehicle of travel. And Chacho's exactly the opposite. You know, he basically eats the same thing. You know, his diet is um, homegrown tobacco and cured pork. Um, he lives the same routine day in and day out. And he doesn't worry about the kind of question that is always bothering me, which is, what's next? Yaurake. What's going on? What's the next thing you're going to do? And that, that's a question you can never really satisfactorily answer. You know, you're, con you're constantly chasing, chasing something that you're never going to really hit. And Chacho is not chasing anything. He's found it. Um, and for me, it's, it's, it's both shocking to be able to see and take in that type of life decision but every time I go down there, I try to take a little piece of that with me. The Trip is produced and edited by Josie Holtzman and mixed by Dan Rosado. Original theme music by Dan the Automator. Additional music in this episode by Knowledge. Our podcast artwork, as always, by Adele Rodriguez. Special thanks to my partner, Matt Goulding, for talking to me today, and to Laura Perez Goulding, who has been a true friend of Roads and Kingdoms and a uh, comadre to everything we've built here. And Chacho is her great uncle. Thank you for introducing us to that amazing man in that amazing place. If you want to check out the original article that inspired this podcast, please visit thetrip.fm. This week on Roads and Kingdoms, more city guides, I'm a huge fan of the Barcelona City Guide we have up there, not least because one of our friends, a talented writer and commercial airline pilot, gives us the absolute complete end of discussion breakdown of El Prat Airport in Barcelona and where to find the best food, drinks, and smoke spots before you take off. Next time on the trip, foreign correspondent and editor Anoop Kapfle talks about goats, God and Garlic in his home country of Nepal. That episode with Anoop is going to be the last episode of this season one of The Trip. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to like us on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher and leave a review if you're feeling inspired. We're getting set to plan out season two of the trip already, and I hope that you'll come along with us. Bye now. Hasta luego. Adios. Buenas noches. Chacho. Okay. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.